I grew up on a farm about 60 miles northeast of Denver, and I've had no other job aside from dairy farming than being in newspapers. That's Linda Shapley. She's a veteran Colorado journalist. Until recently, she worked at the Denver Post. I started there in September 1996. She was there for 21 years, moving from copy editor to senior editor to managing editor. While I was at the Post, there were five Pulitzers won during that time. Starting in 2009 to 2013, we won four Pulitzers in a row. Including one award for their coverage of the Aurora, Colorado shootings. You know, it was a horrible event, but I'm really proud of the work that we did and how we stepped up for our community, which had been through a shooting before. It made me proud to be where we were. In 2010, the Denver Post, like a lot of local papers, was struggling. It was bought by Digital First Media. DFM is a subsidiary of a New York hedge fund, Alden Global Capital. You know, I'd have to say that when DFM first emerged on the scene as our owner, uh, there, there was a sense of optimism in that it was going to be this thing where we're going to try and find ways to make news work. But soon, Shapley said warning signs emerged. And then what happened next is kind of what you would expect. It became less about, here's what we want to do to create digital innovation, to what can we do to do this as ruthlessly efficiently as possible? How many people do you really need in your newsroom was a question we got a lot. To increase profits, the company started laying off journalists. Probably the most painful part, it probably was that very first big layoff of the copy desk. These were folks that were in the trenches with me. And the layoffs didn't stop there. Digital First Media kept cutting and cutting. In 2010, the Denver Post newsroom employed about 200 journalists. Eight years later, that number is down to 49. I was tired. (laughs) I had overseen eight layoffs or buyouts in a six-year span. That weighs on a person, and I didn't know if I had it in me anymore. When was your last day at the Denver Post? December 11th, 2017. It was time for me to step away from the last job I thought I would ever have. It's not just this one newsroom. The Denver Post is part of a national story, the steady decline of local newspapers in America. Between 2008 and 2014, newspapers cut 14,000 jobs. The number of local reporters today is at its lowest point since the 1970s. The crisis in local news is a crisis for American democracy. Can we save local news? And what happens if we can't? For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson. This is Crazy Genius. To understand how far the American newspaper has fallen, let's wind back the clock a few decades. It's important to realize that news, public service, journalism has always been subsidized by something. And then press history can be read as a series of changing subsidy systems. And we're still in that history. We're still living it. That's Jay Rosen. He's a media critic and a professor of journalism at New York University. I asked him to explain to me how the once proud and profitable institution of local news fell into this rut. 
During the 60s, newspaper penetration was almost 90% in a lot of American cities. So that means that 90% of households in most American cities subscribe to a newspaper. Correct. By the 1990s, it was down to 50% or sometimes lower than 50% due to lots of forces, rise of television, you know, mobility. But during that same period, newspaper advertising rates went up because it was a monopoly. Right. <laughs> Where else are they going to go? The newspaper bundle was a package deal. You got your local police reporting, sports writing, electronics ads, classifieds, all in one bundle. But this was always a bit of an awkward union. No one wanted their ad next to a piece of gory war reporting. Best Buy never signed up to fund the Baghdad Bureau. Right. It was just part of this subsidy system, and it gets advertisers frustrated. (laughs) So when an alternative came along... You can imagine with what enthusiasm the advertisers went to the alternative. The alternative was the Internet. Craigslist was a superior classified section. Cars.com was a superior car section. The web was just a better bundle. Between 2000 and 2015, newspaper ad revenue fell from around $60 billion to $20 billion. The arrival of the internet was something like doom. There are some kind of key themes that you can pull out from these things, which do in some ways relate to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen uh, of the news apocalypse. Of the news of the news apocalypse. Trademark Tony Hale. <laughs> Tony Hale has had a front row seat to this news apocalypse. For seven years, he was the CEO of a company called Chartbeat. Chartbeat gives digital news publishers a live look at how many people are reading their stories. With this God's eye view of the news world, Tony watched an unfolding disaster. And he came up with a theory to explain how it all happened. The news business has been destroyed by several agents of catastrophe, which he's named after the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Death, pestilence, famine, and war. First... Death is on the horizon in the form of the, what people call the duopoly, which is kind of Facebook and Google. 99% of all growth went to these two companies. 99% of all growth in digital advertising is going to Google and Facebook? It was go- In 2016, it went to Google and Facebook. Oh, my God. And so what publishers saw was they saw a pie that was not getting any bigger for them and that was increasingly getting eaten by two companies that they also happened to depend upon for their traffic. As the ad money flew away, publishers got desperate. They plastered their websites with ads that got bigger, louder, more interruptive, more obnoxious. There's a thing in software called Moore's Law, and there's a similar kind of Moore's Law of advertising, which is that advertising formats double user frustration every 18 months or so. We God, go, that is true. We go from the static, uh, static ad to the video ad to the autoplay video ad to the autoplay sound on video ad to the autoplay sound on video ad. There are some websites where open. I feel like I, am, I, I need a machete to cut through the jungle thicket of advertising just to read one paragraph. Well, this, this is the fundamental challenge. We have a, a business that on one side tries to entice you to read content, but makes money by distracting you from that content. These distracting ads popping up on our screens like an infectious rash ruined the user experience. This was the second horseman, pestilence. And of course, users responded to this. 
by adopting ad blockers. And suddenly, particularly in Europe, you started to see whole huge swathes of people, sometimes 25, 30% in Germany, wow. around 18% in the UK, about 15% here now, and growing all the time. Hundreds of millions of people now using ad blockers. So suddenly, as a result of this pestilence, you now had famine. Famine, the third horseman. And this was where you suddenly started seeing people say, we have to try and find a new revenue model. We have to think about a future where advertising may not be the thing that supports us. So how do we suddenly re-engage with consumers? And this kind of brings us to our last horseman in some ways, in that if we've had <laughs> pestilence, then famine, and I'm then death... I'm impressed that you've kept this metaphor I'm keeping, going. Yeah, I'm kind of like, <laughs> I'm kind of rolling with it, is we're entering the stage of war. What is war? War is the competition between newspapers to get money from their audience. But readers only have so much money to spend. Who gets that money? Does The Atlantic get it? Does The New York Times? Does the Minneapolis Star Tribune? That war is only just beginning now and it's going to be incredibly interesting to watch. Every single aspect of this apocalypse is most serious for local news. Their advertising famine is more severe. Their ads are more, well, pestilent. They are more sensitive to the deathly rise of Facebook and Google. And the losses there are the largest. Losses in the sense of newsrooms that had 400 people uh, in the peak of the 1990s that have under 100 now, sometimes even less. So that's where the crisis is. What's happening at the Denver Post is happening everywhere. Local news isn't just the most endangered form of journalism. It might also be the most important. In 2009, Seattle and Denver each lost a major print paper. A professor, Lee Shaker, from Portland State University, found that right after these papers went away, citizens were less civically engaged. They didn't call their local officials as much, didn't attend PTA meetings. Government research backs this up. The FCC found that less local reporting leads to more local corruption and worse schools. What a local newspaper does in a local community is we understand what it is that our community needs, and that's what a local newspaper really needs to have for the community, is that trust. As local newspapers across the country have been gutted, their old owners looked for a way out. So many of them closed, consolidated, or sold out to hedge funds like Alden Global Capital. Investors have been treating local papers as distressed assets to squeeze for short-term profit. Tony Hale has a term for this. Zombie newsroom effect. And we're seeing this, uh, we saw this most recently in the, in, with the Denver Post. You had layoffs after layoffs of kind of great journalists. Sounds like there was only a skeleton crew. This giant question that hangs over all of news right now is what's next? And what happens next for this very important part of our community and part of our democracy. Coming up, saving the news and, just maybe, American democracy.
everybody we've spoken to is asking the same question. What's next for news? Linda Shapley. Part of it is subscriptions, trying to find ways to understand how people, why people subscribe to news. See, the internet didn't just explode the business model of news. It also taught a generation of readers that information wants to be free. Today, with the decline of advertising, we need to unteach that lesson. How do we get people to pay for the next generation of high-quality journalism? It was really clear to me that we were seeing a race to the bottom in terms of the quality of news because it was so click-focused and so focused on driving page views to sell advertising. That's Jessica Lesson. She's the founder of The Information, a subscription-only website that reports on technology. But she started at a traditional newspaper. I spent eight years before starting The Information as a reporter at The Wall Street Journal and studied sort of the media business and the tech industry up close. She was covering the very companies that were destroying her employer's business. Over time, I just sort of built up this dissonance in my head around thinking about how media companies should react to what was happening with the Internet and technology. And it seemed to me that traditional newsrooms were reacting in the wrong way. They were trying to become um, Facebooks and Googles, right? They were trying to maximize their online ad revenue. But newspapers were never going to beat Facebook and Google at their own game. To reinvent themselves, they had to reinvent their business model. So Lesson quit the journal to build her own media company. We're about four years old, and we are $400 a year. We started off as a subscription business because I really believe it is the best model for doing quality journalism. So you thought ads are a page view strategy. A subscription business is a reader strategy. And we're focused on high-quality stories, reporting that is expensive and time-consuming, but will be of value to readers. And this is the business model that fits who we're trying to attract to the product. Absolutely. The information proved that, yes, you can build a subscription-only business to cover technology. But what about subjects that don't have the same national appeal, like a local news site covering politics and race in Detroit, Michigan? We actually have an accelerator where we invest in journalists. We can take Ashley Woods, who's building Detour in Detroit. She's focused on the startup culture in Detroit. Uh, She's focused on issues around race and identity in Detroit. You know, right now she's in the phase of building up uh, an email list of likely subscribers based on putting a free newsletter out there. And that's kind of what we suggest. So am I dangerously oversimplifying here when I say that the beginning of a Jessica Lesson formula for saving local news is, one, find somebody with deep roots in an area, two, make sure that that person has hard reporting experience, isn't just sort of a, a, a great sort of hot taker on the internet but has reporting chops, three, find emails, contacts of either individuals, organizations, or companies in that area that might be likely to sign up for the very kind of original reporting that this person would do, and then four, just let her rip. Is that it? Absolutely. That's it. It's how we built the information, so we're sticking with it. It's not just the information. There are a bunch of media startups leaning heavily into subscriptions. You just heard about Detour, which covers Detroit. Then there's The Athletic, which covers sports. And in the last decade, The New York Times itself has gone from making about two-thirds of its revenue from ads to making about two-thirds of its revenue from subscribers. 
the news media in general has gone from a dual revenue model, ads plus subscriptions, to an any revenue model. Subscriptions, events, marketing, and so on, all to collect money directly from audiences. Is that the formula for saving local news? I put the question to Jay Rosen. So we're in this situation, and a lot of news organizations seem to be turning to a subscription business model. Why are they doing that? Desperation. What is your dark side of the subscription-slash-membership business model? One is the war of all against all, which is every news site trying for subscribers in a limited universe. The key question is, how many subscriptions will any one person have? Is this a zero-sum game? In which case, we're going to have publishers fighting it out for who's going to be the subscriber of choice. That's Rosen and Hale's first concern. Here's the second. In the mad rush for reader money, a lot of subscription-only journalism will focus on readers who have the most money. They'll just report on stuff rich people like. Your most rational, if most horrible strategy is to purely focus on the 100,000 people that you think will subscribe and their needs and their wants. So forget about writing about unrepresented minorities. Forget about writing about issues that don't affect the kind of people who might subscribe. Instead, focus all of your efforts on this. So do you start to see focusing on the problems of people who can afford to buy a subscription? There's a part of the subscription model that tends towards not public information, but useful information to a very small class. An elite class. Yes. Another problem, though, you see in successful subscription sites like The Information, which is a very good product, part of the reason people pay $400 a year is precisely because their competitors may not be. They want an edge. Hmm. And so that idea that I'm paying for information that has value to me precisely because it does not circulate to the general public is sound as an economic proposition, but it's not exactly why people go into journalism. No, and also you just described a business model that by its own definition cannot scale. That's right. Because it, if it scales, it loses its value. That, exactly. That's very and, and, and that's actually the origins of reporting. The very first people to ever be paid to report were in early modern Europe, and they were in the employ of rich bankers and merchants who had investments in other countries and needed somebody to report on business conditions, fires, riots. They would literally write newsletters to the rich merchant, and it was an advantage over other merchants. Local news in the post-advertising age is stuck. Either it makes money by appealing to rich audiences, like the information does, by reporting on some of the most profitable companies on the planet, or local news loses money and eventually gets bought out by rich owners. Some of those rich owners might be benevolent, but others might be hedge funds like Alden Global Capital. Either way, local journalism is inching toward aristocracy. What is your hope for the Denver Post? I would love it if they found a new owner. If they were to accept a 10% profit margin as opposed to a 17 or 18% profit margin, then the Denver Post could be part of figuring out this giant question that hangs over all of news right now, which is what's next and what happens next for 
this very important part of our community and part of our democracy. The story of technology often goes like this. Old thing exists, new thing comes along, makes it more efficient, and most people end up better off. But that's not the story here. The digital revolution made advertising more efficient. That's been great for companies trying to find customers. But it's been horrible for newspapers, whose business relied on inefficient advertising bundled together with local news reporting. So the internet is effectively killing newspapers. And we aren't all better off for it. The question we're asking today is, can local news be saved? And I would love to confidently say, yes, absolutely, we have the answer. But I can't do that. There's no guarantee that even exceptional, brilliant, game-changing reporting on low-income communities will find a consistent paying audience. We still have to solve this puzzle. And the clock is ticking. So my outlook for local news is that we have five years, five years to kind of solve this problem before too many layoffs have occurred and too many newsrooms start looking like zombies where there's maybe 30 journalists where there were once 300 and local city governments isn't covered and corruption and abuse by the police isn't covered because there's just, there's not enough time. And what's at stake? What's at stake? Democracy. Crazy Genius is produced by Krista Ripple, Kasia Mihailovich, and Catherine Wells, with help from Abdullah Fayyad. David Herman is our engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Special thanks to Matt Thompson and Kevin Townsend. I'm Derek Thompson. Thank you for listening.